Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a really interesting show, and it actually, you know, it, it kind of touches on lifestyle choices that we make. I've got Joan Ifflin, and she is a PhD in addictive nutrition, which that's so intriguing to me. She also has an MBA, and she's been creating breakthroughs in recovery from food addiction, started in 1999 with her first book, and all the way to 2018 when she has written a textbook. Processed Food Addiction, Foundations, Assessment, and Recovery. She's also founded the Online Addiction Reset Community, ARC, in 2016. She has a website, foodaddictionreset.com, a Facebook group, Food Addiction Education, and another website, foodaddictionresources.com, and that, that provides free support. The Reset Week is the first online video program for withdrawal, um, and it's a program training that that really does train addiction reset community leaders. Dr. Ifflin is the lead author of the first scholarly description of processed food addiction and definition of addictive foods, and I can't wait to hear that. Um, thank you so much for joining with me today, Dr. Ifflin. Oh, I'm just so honored to be here and um, just really grateful for your interest in the topic. It is fascinating, I think. It is fascinating. And, you know, the thought that there are addictive substances hidden in our food, the processed food that we eat, that's pretty scary. Well, it's um, not the first time that an addiction corporation has hid addictive substances in their products. This, these are the same people who hid extra nicotine in cigarettes, and it's part of the addiction business model. I know it's an odd combination for me to have an MBA and a doctorate in addictive nutrition, but they go together kind of tragically well. We had, this, this all started when Big Tobacco came and bought Kraft, Nabisco, and General Foods in the space of three years in the mid-1980s. And, and there's just a business model. It's a business model that's used for alcohol, vaping, marijuana. The pharmaceutical industry used it to market opiates to doctors. And one of the, I call it the five A's of the addiction business model. And one of them is to hide the addictive properties of the product. So how hard is that to do? Is it easy? Uh, for processed foods, it's very easy. Because even before those big acquisitions in the mid-1980s, tobacco had already gained experience transferring tobacco marketing addictive tobacco marketing to children and sugar. So a tobacco company bought um, the uh, Kool-Aid and Hawaiian Punch and Capri Sun, and they already were developing expertise in how to addict children to sugar. So sugar is a, a commonly accepted drug. It's a drug. 
the brain doesn't know sugar from cocaine, except that sugar's a little bit worse. So they already had a lot of expertise in how to addict children to sugar. They, that the next A of the addiction business model is young age, young age of onset. The younger you can get, whether it's a human or a laboratory animal, the younger you addict that person to anything, the harder it will be for them to give it up. So this is, for example, this is why the tobacco companies tried to market camels to 10-year-old boys through cartoons. Now, at that time, we had really strong regulation, and the government made them stop doing that. And people knew that cigarettes were not good for children. But they've been able to position sugar as you know, the, the friend of children and uh, kind of a right of children. So it's they're quite expert at this. They've had a lot of experience at it. Well, you know, you're right. When I think about the relationship that kids have with sugar, many times sugar's a reward, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's your birthday. Mm-hmm. Let's have cake and ice cream. Or mm-hmm. if you do really, really well, mom will get you a cookie. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is a reward. And that mm-hmm. in itself makes us crave it. Yes, yes. We associate it with good things, and it just becomes it becomes a, stimu- a, a stimulant by association. So just what you're describing, people associate it with love. And so when they get into a loving situation, boom, suddenly they have cravings for sugar, and it's by association. It's quite quite awful. Well, you know, think about it. Valentine's Day, you know, get a box Mm -hmm. of chocolate for Valentine's Day. And Mm -hmm. with the Christmas, oh my gosh, that's almost, I have clients that just say, now it's Christmas and that that is my license to indulge. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and they look forward to it. They actually plan around Mm -hmm. it coming and how they're going to react to it. Is that a sign of addiction? When you're planning, yes. how you... When you... Uh, so, it's very interesting, but over 50 years, the American Psychiatric Association defined 11 signs of addiction. And so, for my doctoral work, for example, I took those 11 signs of alcoholism, I reworded them for food, and in a pretty small sample, 64 people, we were able to validate them. Right out of the box. They're just these are valid questions to ask to identify whether an addiction is present. And you know, today eighty three percent of Americans are overweight or obese or severely obese. And it's getting worse. Those numbers are from twenty eighteen. And we see research showing that six of the 11 signs are, are are present in obese people. So this is an incredibly common addiction. People don't know they have it, and they have it severely. So is this addiction with processed foods different from an addiction 
to tobacco or to alcohol or to sex or to gambling? In, in the fundamental ways, it's the same. You have hyperactive reward pathways with, and, and, okay, so just one step at a time. Hyperactive reward pathways, the brain is trying to correct the euphoria from those stimulated pathways by hyperactivating the stress pathways. This is a pathway that sends a signal to the adrenal glands to release adrenaline, cortisol. So as those two pathways in the brain become more and more sensitive and more and more reactive, which means they're hyperactive more and more of the time, you're pulling the blood flow away from the frontal lobe. So you have less and less executive function learning, memory, uh, attention span, decision-making, impulse control, emotional processing. And you, so that that's the tragedy of any addiction, which is cravings are now dominating the brain. Stress is dominating the brain. And the, the rational thought that might bring you out of it is not working. So this is why we should have such deep, deep compassion for addicted people. They, they're, they have a, they have lost their braking system. Well, and oftentimes, you know, addiction is viewed as it's just um, making poor choices or lack of self-control. And mm-hmm. the way I view addiction is addiction is a brain disease. Everybody's mm-hmm. brain is, it, it wires and fires differently, but it definitely, it, there's so much more to it than just, you know, not being able to say no to chocolate or, 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 or wanting your comfort food. So yes. when people, how do, how do people determine, it's so interesting because this processed food, I get advice, ask advice every week about, you know, diet advice. And my only mm-hmm. advice that I give is stay away from processed food. If it comes Yay, in a bag, a box, you. a can, you know, if it if it's if it's good for two years, there's a lot of stuff in there that's not good mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. but so many of us, I mean, a part of it is our schedule. Part of it is, you know, we we're an instantaneous society these days. We want it now. We don't want to mm-hmm. wait. And we want well, the, the, the thing that is really not known, and this is, I'm so grateful to you for spreading the word on this, is that there is, the withdrawal from processed foods, and there is a withdrawal. It's one of the pieces of evidence that, that, that these we're dealing with drugs. Your body thinks those substances are drugs. Your body is reacting to them. Your brain is reacting to them as if they were drugs. You know, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. If your body reads it like a drug, it's a drug. So the, the, here's, here's something that is just so wonderful and spectacular that I'm really grateful that your listeners will hear this, is after a four-day withdrawal, sometimes it goes as long as eight days, but after four days, the cravings go away. The bloating goes away. The brain fog goes away. The fatigue goes away. And people have a hard time getting through those four days. 
I hear this all the time. You know, I can go for three days and then I crater and I cave in. Well, it's because the cravings intensify through the four days. And then it's just like the sun comes out on that fourth or fifth, sixth, sometimes seventh or eighth day, and the cravings are gone. I can remember that day. It was January 4th, 1996. I had cravings when I went to kindergarten. I can remember because I couldn't just walk out to the kitchen and get some processed foods. And I figured out I could eat my chapstick and I could eat the paste because it was <laughs> still made from flour. And when they came and taught us how to tell time, my first thought was, oh, great, I'll know when the snack is coming. You know, I, I met my first first kiddo who would choose plain milk over chocolate milk. I just, I thought they were from Mars. It was just so bizarre. So I knew I went to kindergarten with pretty severe cravings. I didn't know that you could get rid of them. And I was shocked on January 4th. I, was, I remember exactly where I was. I was at my dining room table doing some work. And I looked up at the clock, and it was noon, and I hadn't thought about food. And that was the first time in my my remembrance that I had spent four hours think, not thinking about food. So people get the idea that if they don't eat processed foods, they're going to be fighting those cravings the rest of their lives. No, it's a very short time. And you talk about instant gratifi- gratification as long as the processed foods are out of your diet and you have a nice full, you know, you're not restricting calories, you can you can eat and be full, you'll still lose weight because it is the processed foods that are creating the extra weight. Is it what's in the foods or is it the amount that you, that you eat because you crave it or both? Or It's processing techniques that have so refined the plants, that they have become addictive. So plants, uh, edible plants, have natural endorphins in them. It's a wonderful thing that Mother Nature gave us, which is we're not just going around chewing on things so that we don't die. We actually have enjoyment. We, have it, we enjoy them. So what happens in modern-day processing, this really started in the 1900s when uh, the big steel rollers came into the flour mills and they could refine grains down to a, a very, very fine powder, which then gets into your system very quickly and then you get a high off of it, followed by a crash. And the crash is so unpleasant that you um, you will eat it again. This is not hunger. This is drug reactions. You'll eat it again to try to get out of the the crash. So um, the big breakthrough, now one of the A's of the addiction business model is affordability. And the big breakthrough for the tobacco companies, why did they wait till the mid-1980s? They they bought Hawaiian Punch in 1963. Why did they wait for all those years? Because uh, the price of sugar. So sugar was controlled by another addiction cartel, the sugar cartel in Florida. So what happened in 1980 is that high fructose corn syrup came on the market. And all that corn, you know, the the agricultural department had taken the quotas off of corn 
There was a glut of corn everywhere. Well, the, the big agribusiness companies wanted to sell all that corn. And so I think the USDA just sided with the corn and wheat companies and stood by. While the tobacco industry created these addictions, they thought, well, great, we'll sell, we'll sell the corn and wheat. <coughs> and um, so that was, that was the final piece that the tobacco industry really needed because the product has to be affordable enough to be used often enough to create and then sustain the addiction. So it's why when tobacco, we finally got a grip on what was going on with tobacco, the, um, the, one of the public policies was to tax the heck out of it. So take away the affordability of the product. Well, we don't have that in processed foods. So that was, that was the big breakthrough. So, you know, when you when you look at the food industry, it's gosh, it's a huge business. How much of that is is based on processed foods? You know, I don't have that exact breakdown. Um, actually, give me I a do. guess. I do. Yeah, let's go at it sideways. Sixty five percent of what Americans eat is processed. Oof. Yeah. So, you know what? You asked me a question and I lost my train of thought, so let me go back to it. You asked, you know, so what is hidden in our food? Some of it's not hidden at all. Sugar is addictive. High fructose corn syrup is addictive. All the sugars, anything that tastes sweet, a concentrated sweet taste is going to um, send off the dopamine pathways. Flour is so highly refined now that it's just a plain old carbohydrate high and it corresponds with serotonin. And then gluten. Gluten has a natural morphine in it. It's called gluteomorphine. And if you just eat the, the, the normal wheat, like European wheat or Mediterranean wheat, it's not enough to get you high. But when you fine, finely grind it, and then American wheat has a, a double the normal rate of gluten in it, it, it can become addictive. Excessive salt. We see uh, there's new research showing a, a withdrawal syndrome from salt. Then dairy. Dairy is a substance that is designed to put a 100-pound calf to sleep so that it will absorb nutrients. It has four different kinds of morphine in it to do exactly that. So it's uh, And then when you concentrate it into cheese... You know, you might as well be smoking it. <laughs> it's, it's such a it's, it's a drug. So, and then uh, processed fats. I have seen a, a couple of good studies recently on rats becoming addicted to Crisco just on a regular schedule. And then, of course, caffeine, which is served with a lot of processed foods, and then food additives. So. The food industry occupies quite a bit of the Food and Drug Administration, and they're not really monitoring what's in food. The last time I looked, there were 15,000 food additives, and given that the people running the product formulation are the same people who, who hid extra nicotine in cigarettes, we, I, we have, I'm, I'm sure we have no idea how many of those 15,000 ingredients are there to make the products more addictive. 
So how accurate do you think the labels are on a, on a box or a can? Well, um, I'm going to give credit to Marion Nessel. She was the chair of the uh, New York University Nutrition Department for years. She said if it has a label, it's a warning label. So, yes, it makes shopping so easy. It makes shopping super easy. You just run down that produce aisle. A celery looks like celery. Nobody has processed that. Beets look like beets. Carrots look like carrots. You go around the back of the store and get whatever proteins you need from there. You go through the bulk aisle. You know, the the um, plant proteins still look like they looked at the moment of harvest. There's plenty of variety. There's plenty of different foods. But uh, I once actually, this is years ago, got uh, my daughter and a friend of hers to go through... Um, a health, a, a, a food, a, sorry, a store that markets itself as a health food store. One percent, one percent of the foods in that store were not processed, not addictive, and it's just what I'm saying. It's the produce style. It's the you know animal proteins across the back. It's you can use things like cold pressed olive oil. That's um, Yes, it's processed, but it's not addictive. I and mean, you still have to measure it. Fats can be addictive. But yeah, it's there's a reason why that uh, that statistic, the six, Americans are eating 65% of their calories in processed foods. There's a reason for that. The uh, tobacco slash food industry has had full reign <clears throat> over messaging. So what you do is you addict the person. Uh, by hiding the substance, and then you constantly provoke those now sensitized reward brain cells through advertising, and they call it, they have a name for it, surround marketing. Everywhere you go, there's a reminder. 65% of American adults smoked. Well, there's a reason. That addiction business model is tragically effective. So the other two A's are um, advertising and availability. When they were taking out the cigarette machines, they were putting in snack and soda machines. It's just diabolical. Well, it certainly is scary. There's no doubt about that. So why don't... Why don't people know about processed food addiction? Well, the the tobacco executives were quite wise. You know, they were beat up in the courts. They were beat up in the media. So when they slid into processed foods, they were ready. They also had a big partner, now not not a literal partner, but a figurative partner partner in the pharmaceutical industry because processed foods create they processed foods attack cell function uh, they create a lot of debris when you combine sugar with fat and then the cell burns that it creates kind of like trash uh, glycation and oxidative radicals and it's the trash builds up in the cell 
plus the person's not getting high quality fat. High quality fats create the cell membrane, so the membrane is not functioning very well. The mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, becomes overwhelmed by the amount of sugar and fat um, being pushed into the cell, and the cell loses its ability to clean itself. So now you're in a body where at the most fundamental level, the cell level, the body is breaking down. So I have seen, I've been in the field for 26 years. I've had my online recovery community for four years. I, I have seen so many things get better or even disappear completely that if somebody asks me, do I think you know, XYZ will go away, I say, well, let's get the processed foods out and see what's left. Unless it's been surgically removed or you've lost it in an accident or it's completely eroded away like cartilage erode away, uh, it will start to work again. The hard wiring, the human's hard wiring is still there. And, well, that's and really, good to hear. Yes. I mean, this is why I would recommend this without reservation for anybody. Just try it. Because the thing, like for me, I had had those cravings since, it could have been since I was born. It could have even been in utero because my mother's blood that was coming to me had sugar in it. So we do have evidence now that when mothers are eating processed foods, their babies are born with organs and glands that have already adapted to chronic high levels of sugar in the blood. Well, and that makes sense because we know that trauma can occur in the womb. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And when I think about yeah. our as our bodies just normally function, like all day long, those neurons and dendrites, they're wiring and firing. And where they're, when mm-hmm. they're doing that, they're creating toxic waste. And mm-hmm. that's why, you know, sleep is so important. So those little glial cells can come out and clean yeah. that mess up. So yeah. listening to you talk, I mean, what's going on, I always say that the body keeps score of what's going on in mm-hmm. the brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And listening to you talk, it really does. We've got a minute before we go to break. If we can leave our listeners with one good takeaway from the first half of the show, what would it be? Um, I like your word environment. So clean up your environment. You can't clean up your food until you've cleaned up your environment. Well, <laughs> you're right about that. And who's in, who's in control of that, that cleanup? So that has to be negotiated with your household members. Uh, we're just about to move into workplace consulting to help workplaces clean up their environments. Um, but you, it helps if you're in a group of people who are doing it. Your conformance drive will help carry you through over the the long term. And it's amazing. It's it is amazing. amazing. All the benefits. And I mm-hmm. want to hear more about that when we come back from break. Thank you. We'll be back after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. To lose weight, we know that each day we need to burn more calories than we take in through eating. And exercise burns more calories. 
According to Discovery Health, a 150-pound person will burn about 60 calories while taking a one-hour nap. One hour of sitting and watching television burns about the same. But if that 150-pound person takes a one-hour brisk walk, then say goodbye to more than 250 calories. Cardio exercise like running, biking, swimming, and brisk walking are the best modes of exercise to burn the highest amount of calories and will get the endorphins flowing in your body. Those feel-good neurotransmitters boost your mood naturally. So use exercise to burn calories, lose weight, and to feel good. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. In 1905, 11-year-old Frank Epperson of San Francisco accidentally left his fruit drink with a stirring stick in it outside on a chilly night. The next morning, he found the drink had frozen solid. And when he tugged on the stirring stick, out popped the world's first fruit-flavored popsicle. Epperson christened his treat an Epsicle. In those days, junk food was called blubberwort. 18 years later, Epperson remembered his creation and started a business making Epsicles in seven different flavors. He changed the name to Popsicle after his children's frequent request for one of Pop's sickles. Epperson received a patent for frozen ice on a stick in 1924, and by 1928, he had earned royalties on more than 60 million Popsicles. That's a lot of cold, hard cash. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back. And right before break, we were talking about the different types of, of factors that come into play with food addiction. And one of the terms that I heard, Dr. Ifan, I heard you say was conformance guide. Can you tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about that? Yes. I'm so glad you asked about that. So, this is so interesting to me, but uh, a lot of people know about our hierarchy of needs, and the most basic need is food, water, shelter. But when you really stop to think about it, whether you're a creationist or a an evolutionist, your well-being, your survival depended on being in a tribe. This is why the Bible talks about tribes right off the bat and why uh, anthropologists think that people lived out their lives in small groups, uh, 7 to 12 people, maybe gathered as a nation a couple of times a year. So in order to get water, food, shelter, you have to be in a group of people. The most powerful system in the brain in this framework is mirror neurons. They copy the people around us. They will do that until our dying day because um, for all those years, no matter what framework you're looking at, you were in a tribe, you were in a group for survival. And um, those, those mirror neurons look at the five people you see the most and they just copy those behaviors. So how did the tobacco industry and the processed food, how do all of the addiction 
merchants get people to use their products in the first place, it's because they put people in their advertisements that we want to emulate. So, for example, they made cigarettes sexy. Um, that Out of all the examples of how powerful and manipulative and deceptive these advertisers were, that is the one that really stands out. Because cigarettes are disgusting. <laughs> They're repulsive. And the idea that they would be sexy, why would anybody think that? It's because they saw image after image after image of Jean Harlow and Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart smoking. And so they said, oh, well, if I smoke, I'll be sexy too. This is conformance drive. This is mirror neurons. Oh, everybody smokes and they're sexy. Okay, well, sex is something we want to have because we want to procreate. So we we should smoke. Or they made cigarettes rebellious. It's just so bad. Um, And then people wanted to conform. It's not that they wanted to. So this is not choice. This is, I think it's so important to know this. This is not the choice neurons in the frontal lobe. This is mirror neuron. It's conformance drive. And we are, we are unconscious of it, but we, we do follow it. So, for example, now the advertisements for snack foods, they show somebody sitting in the dark on their sofa with the snack foods in front of them. Because that's the most likely thing that the person watching is doing. It's, it's just diabolical. And that person, people tell me all the time, you know, I, I start watching TV. I am determined I'm not going to eat anything more that evening. But something takes over me. And I'm just, I call it the zombie walk. You're walking towards the kitchen to get what you know is out there. Your frontal lobe might be screaming, no, no, we said we weren't going to do this. But the mirror neurons and the addictive pathways are activated by availability. They are, they're dragging you to the kitchen. You're not in control of your behavior. You're so right. Everything you do, you don't do, or how well you do it is governed by by the brain. I mean, Mm -hmm. the 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 brain is in charge and so many people, and sometimes it's that subconscious level that takes over on a conscious level. People say, I don't want to eat anything after dinner. I don't want to eat anything while I'm watching TV, Mm -hmm. but you know, every second that brain is capable of taking in 11 million bits of data. Research says that somewhere between 40 and 126 go to the conscious level but we don't have to do the math. Where does it yeah. all go? It goes yeah. right in that subconscious, and we're not even aware that we've yep. taken it in. Yep, yep. That's that's just, I never heard it described quite that way, but that just helped me personally immensely to know, to be able, it's going to help me. I'm going to use that uh, to describe to people why it's so important that they control the the messaging, the triggering, the stimulation, the cueing, the reminders in their home environments. Well, and and what do you think social media does 
to to I mean I, I have my own opinion about what social media does to the brain. Um, but what do you think it does in the it, towards addiction? Okay, so we do have uh, if you do if you go to the big research database and you put in Facebook addiction, you will be shocked oh, at yeah. the dozens and dozens of studies that come up for Facebook addiction. Um, so the theory is that there's, well, maybe it's not theory, maybe it, it's established, um, that there are dopamine hits from uh, somebody liking your comments, for example. But the, the, the damage from those sites makes a very tight circle of just tragic thinking. So... First, the processed foods make you so tired, brain fogged, numbed out, um, you're too wired up to go to sleep, and you're too numbed out to do anything else. You're too tired. So you get on social media, which is hypnotic. And you, or you're trying to get dopamine hits. I mean, you don't know you're trying to get dopamine hits, but you're stuck there. Now you're seeing images of eating disordered people because eating disordered people like to put their pictures, their before and after pictures, their athletic pictures, their fitness pictures. The Internet is full of pictures of eating disordered people. They've gone through calorie restriction, which sets up weight regain and weight loss resistance because it lowers energy expenditure. It's a defensive mechanism on part of the, the survival brain. So um, they form negative opinions about themselves and their mirror neurons are encouraging them in the direction of this disordered eating, calorie restriction. Well, when you restrict calories often enough, the cravings just accelerate, and basic survival hunger accelerates. So now you have an additional brand-new force on that brain driving it to seek food. So if you try to diet, people say now all the time, I, I can't diet anymore. I just lose it right away, and I start binging. Well, that's because the fear of famine brain has been activated by the dieting and the fasting. And this research is pretty clear. Uh, you, it, the researcher, Eric Stice, took um, food diaries from a group of, say, adolescent girls. He waits five years, and then he goes back and sees what kind of eating disorders they've developed. And the people who are dieting and fasting have developed binge eating disorder, bulimia, and it's just so clear that the body will fight back, and it will fight back by um, making you binge. Well, that you know, that's that's good to hear because I know many times with addiction, people feel like that they 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 have to to go outside of themselves. I mean, a lot of addiction programs incorporate the twelve step program, and I know that you come at it from a, a program standpoint as well. Tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about how, what the approach of ARC is. Okay, thank you. Um, 
when I was writing the textbook, there's a full chapter on each one of those 11 signs, 11 diagnostic criteria. There's a full chapter. I said, I've got to show people that this behavior is active in overeaters. So I remember I was sitting at my desk. I had written chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. And I said, well, everybody's got this. Everybody's got that. Everybody's got this. And then I got to chapter six. I wrote chapter six. I said, well, everybody has that too. You know, not everybody, of course, but um, the evidence is that people are experiencing that sign, people who are chronic overeaters. And it hit me like a, a bolt of lightning. Oh, my gosh. This is a severe addiction. That's the cutoff. If you have, if you're experiencing six or more of those signs, you're experiencing the signs of a severe addiction. Now, this is not a diagnosis, and I diagnosis takes a long interview and it's in depth. But anybody can go to our website, processfoodaddiction.com, and take the self quiz. It's not a diagnosis, but you can begin to see for yourself that. Um, it's it's a joyous thing to find out. I know it doesn't sound that way. I have an addiction. I'm I should be joyous. Yes, because now you can get it treated and you can get it under control. You can't treat an addiction with a weight loss program or an eating disorder program. Just like you wouldn't treat a you know an underweight heroin addicted person with a weight gain program and leave the substance in. So. Once I got that piece, as soon as I turned in the manuscript, middle of 2017, I started um, trying to figure out how to, you can't, oh, sorry, let me back up. I'm ahead of myself. A severe addiction calls for residential treatment, really for a couple of years. You go to you know, the acute phase treatment, and then you go to a halfway house for a couple of years. You, maybe you go on a program where you go to a halfway house at night, but you go to your job during the day. That's the level of treatment that's needed for a severe addiction. And so, well, we're not sending hundreds of millions of people to residential treatment. So what's the next level? Well, the next level is something called intensive outpatient. And that would be run by a hospital. And you would go to the hospital Monday through Friday, 9 to 4, you would go there all day. And I said to myself, well, no hospital is going to do this soon enough to help the people who really need it. And that December, December of 2017, I met Zoom. I got on my first Zoom chat. And I will tell you, my first thought was, oh, my gosh, we could provide intensive outpatient over Zoom. People could stay in their homes. They could be in rehab in their in their cars while they're, you know, doing conducting their lives, and they could get the years and years that you really need to rewire, you know, uh, really every brain cell. So um, I ran. I, I by that time I've been in this field for 22 years. I had tried over 14 things to help people get off these processed foods. But it wasn't until I was I had finished writing that chapter six that I realized why none of them worked, why none of the weight loss works, why none of the eating disorder stuff works. It's because it's a severe addiction. 
you need to rewire billions of brain cells, and you need to do it in a very calm, uh, stress-free, trigger-free environment. So um, we ran our first week-long program January 1st, uh, 2018. And, oh, my gosh, you know, after 22 years of trying this, that, and the other thing, by the end of the first day, we had uh, 11 volunteers doing it. They were all eating clean. They had all eaten clean the entire day. And they had all started the day with tremendous anxiety. I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to weigh my food because it's too triggering. Don't weigh your food. Just eat clean as, as best you can. And they were all eating clean by the end of the day. And I will by tell you, I did not day? know. By the end of the first day, I wow. didn't know about mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are not in the textbook. But I'll tell you what, I got myself busy to try to figure out what happened. There it was, after 22 years, an easy way to start eating clean. These are people who had been trying to eat clean for decades, and they just couldn't pull a full day together. And there they were, very first day, in a group. All day long. They kept their Zoom screens open all day long. We were chatting. We were doing activities. Their mirror neurons just swung right around, latched onto that group and said, oh, this must be our new tribe. And just said, okay, well, what do they do? Oh, they eat clean? Okay, well, we'll eat clean. Mirror neurons, I cannot over-describe how powerful mirror neurons are. If for any of your people listening, if you this is not your fault. I really want to say that about ten thousand times. This is not your fault. This is not your fault. This is not your fault. I know this could be the first time you've ever heard that you will helplessly be copying the five people you see the most, and if they're eating processed foods. Your brain will not let you stop eating processed foods. This is an incredibly great study. The researchers Bar B A H R, and they discovered that uh, your weight will conform to the weight of your your social circle. This researcher went so far as to say, if your social circle is not losing weight, you cannot lose weight and maintain it. So. What I did was I got super busy. I knew that I myself personally could not stay on Zoom for all the hours needed, but in a very short period of time, um, we had people who were willing and able to host hours of Zoom hours so that I could get off and then come back on. We kept, we already had a conference call daily. We kept that conference call and we recorded it as a podcast. So over the four, coming close to four and a half years now, that we've had the ARCs and the Adarkas, the Addiction Reset Community, um, we are now up to 16 hours out of every 24 around the world of live, I call it broadcasting, <clears throat> live programming over Zoom. And we have a huge library. I give a workshop every week, so we have a 
a library of over 60 videos. So if there doesn't happen to be anything live on in a, in a particular time, you can go into the library and get one of our videos out. Now, here's the cool, amazing thing that happens when you get in, into your, your tribe, your community. The body gives you an oxytocin release. So the body is like this chemical warehouse, chemical refinery, and it's releasing pleasant chemicals when you do something associated with survival. So oxytocin travels to the brain and regulates dopamine. This is the coolest thing ever. If you're having a craving, it's because so much dopamine or opiate or cannabinoid has leaked into your brain that it has gotten control of your behavior. The brain imaging research on this is chilling. You can see those reward pathways starting to act up. They're addicted. They're sensitive. They're reactive. Those signals go straight over to the motor centers, the movement centers, and control behavior directly. There's no activity, no contribution, no... No, nothing going on in the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is completely bypassed. The only... Okay, so it's dysregulated dopamine that's driving that behavior. When you come into community and you get that oxytocin release, oxytocin travels to that dopamine pathway and regulates it. So people lapse and eat these very incredibly harmful processed foods because they have these intense cravings, they're being reinforced by mirror neurons. But when you come into community and your mirror neurons say, oh, yeah, 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 this is our tribe, they don't need that stuff, and then you get your dopamine pathway regulated, people say they could be in the middle of an intense craving, about to fall apart, about to eat something for which they're going to hate themselves. You just open up their device, whether it's a phone or a tablet, or a laptop, or their computer, they lay their eyes on their ARC community, and the craving goes away. And it's all understandable. The mechanics of it are all established. So that is exactly what we do. The food piece of it and recovery from uh, loss of control over behavior is about 20%. We get that. You know, our people are eating clean. But here's the thing that I only realized in the last couple of years, which is when you grow up as a child addicted, every cell develops in an addicted brain. And every crisis is settled by going out to the kitchen and getting something. So people don't have basic life skills. They don't have relationship management skills, stress management skills, sleep management skills, movement management skills. They don't have food production skills. They don't have emotional processing. And and remember, now the frontal lobe is impaired. We have cognitive impairment. So this is the big breakthrough, I think, that the ARC really provides, which is that it's very hard to teach, you know, read a book, absorb the book, change your behavior, because that frontal lobe, the learning and the intention span and the memory 
are impaired. They haven't had enough blood flow for decades. So you rely on the mirror neurons to teach all those things. You need stress management. You need relationship management because stress will activate the addiction. And it just works. You you make it very, very easy for people to be around people who already have those skills. Mirror neurons will just kick right in and copy them. Well, I think that's a, a, a great yep. point to make. You know, we're kind of winding down. I think we've got about three or four minutes left. And, okay. you know, what I want people to walk away with is the fact that, that they can understand that they can do something about it. And it's yes. not just, a, you know, it's not just the fact that they are making bad choices around their food Mm-mm. Uh, Mm-mm. or that they're not doing what they should be doing. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's there's so much more to it. So in the last three minutes that we have, let's kind of tell give people a, an overview of what if they decide they want to address their food addiction how can they do it really quickly, and what are the steps? So uh, go to processedfoodaddiction.com, and I would I would take the self-quiz because it is, it's going to cement in, oh, yes, okay, I do have this yippee-ki-yay, now I know what to do, and now I know why nothing else has worked. So start getting rid of that guilt, that self-blame, self-loathing, this is not your fault. And then um, if you scroll down, you'll come to the Addiction Reset community. Just click there. It's not a contract, and it's not expensive. It's $59 a month, and you you, you have control over your credit card. You can go to the website and take off your credit card anytime. We want people to stay because they want to stay. And you will get your own advocate. We are training advocates. Any of your people need a job. The people whom we train have a job with the ARC. It's all peer support. We don't have a license. We don't have one license in the whole operation. This is 100% peer support. But it provides the crucial element, which is mirror neuron engagement. It's very easy to get your mirror neurons to swing over, latch on to healthy people, and start copying them. So no matter how many things you've tried, this is brand new. It's a huge breakthrough. And it was never about you. I'm sorry, I'm going to start crying, but it was never about you. Those programs were not designed to address the severe addiction. Nobody ever called you up and said, hey, would you like to have this really distressing addiction? No, they just, they hid substances in your food. They told you drugs were food and they did it very powerfully. But have hope. Have well, your, and that's a, I just that's want your people great, to have hope. That is a great line to end on is have hope. Because mm-hmm. it, it, without that hope, you won't have the, the motivation. You won't have the the you just won't be won't have the energy to get up and go do it. Dr. Eflin, mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on my thank show you. today. And again, yeah. it's foodaddictionreset.com. There's a mm-hmm. Facebook group, Food Addiction Education.
behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.